Father, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that the word of God would dig deep into our hearts today. We pray, Lord, that it would be meaningful and significant. The Lord, our coming together today would really matter. Lord, would you do heart surgery on each one of us, Lord, minister in the way that we truly need it. We pray your Holy Spirit would come and do his work. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. Well, as we come in Luke chapter 7, as we work our way through the scripture, we're coming to one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, this story is fascinating to me. It's intriguing. The Gospel of Luke has often been called the Gospel for the Underdog. And there's a reason behind that. Uh, Luke seems to emphasize Jesus' ministry to people like women and Gentiles and tax collectors and prostitutes. Luke takes special interest and delight in showing Jesus' love to people that are sort of marginalized by society, the ones with little power, the ones that were maybe looked down on. And this is no exception. We have here Jesus' loving ministry to this woman who's called a sinner. And we only find this account in the Gospel of Luke. It's nowhere else. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or John. But tell you what, when we get to heaven, I want to look up this woman. I, I want to get to know her better and ask her some questions. And, you know, sometimes we, we look at the people in stories like this and we think of them only as sort of characters in a story, sort of like a, a fictional story. But she's a real person. She really lived and she's really going to be in heaven, and you are really going to see her when you get there. In uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, here, Luke gives us an example of how Jesus did become a friend to a sinner in this immoral woman. Now, there's two people that we're going to meet in this story. Well, there's actually three, Jesus Christ. But the two people that I want you to focus on today are this woman and this Pharisee. One who was probably a prostitute, although we can't prove that conclusively, but she probably was um, probably a prostitute, a harlot of that day. The other was a Pharisee. So you've got two polar opposites here, don't you? A man and a woman, a Pharisee, the most religious of all the Jews, and then this woman who probably was a prostitute, a man who was respected by everybody in his society, and a woman who was disrespected and an outcast and despised by everybody in her society. So two very, very different people come together when they come together around the person of Jesus Christ. So my plan today is just simply to help you take a look real close, first at the woman, then Simon the Pharisee, and then draw out some application for our lives. First of all, this woman, who was she? Well, take a look at verse 37. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. That's how she's described. Now notice she's not even given a name. We have the name of the Pharisee. His name's Simon. But Luke doesn't even include her name. Just a woman in the city who was a sinner. Well, what kind of a sinner? If you look in the NASB margin, it says an immoral 
an immoral woman. So commentators for, for hundreds of years have come to the conclusion that most likely she was a prostitute. She was an immoral woman of the city. She had been for years plying her trade, her trade of sin, and that's the situation that we have there. She was a notorious sinner. In other words, everybody in the city knew about this woman. And as such, she would have been cast out, she would have been rejected, she would have been despised. In chapter 7, verse 47, when Jesus is talking about her, he said, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven. So it was true that this woman had committed many sins. Jesus said so. And they're not little, simple, light sins. They're grievous, dark, serious sins. That was her condition. Now, I wonder, would you come here this morning if you knew that every person in this building knew every one of your deepest, darkest sins that you'd ever committed? Maybe some of you, at some point in your life, have had a secret, adulterous relationship, and your husband and your wife never found out about that. And you want to keep that secret. It's a skeleton in the closet. Or maybe there's a woman here who once had an abortion and she's never told her husband about that. She just wants that to be put in her past. Or maybe you've embezzled. Or you spent long hours looking at pornographic websites and you'd be uh, horrified if the whole church found out about some of those things in your past. Well, here this woman comes to this group of respectable Jewish people, high-ranking religious people, and they know all about her sins, but she comes anyway. I love the guts and the courage and the determination of this woman. She didn't care about what these people knew about her. She just cared about getting to Jesus and showing her Savior how much she loved him. So we're introduced to her. She's called a sinner. Secondly, we learned that she was a loving sinner. Because when she came, she didn't come empty-handed. She brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, when we go over to Mark chapter 14, there was another woman who came to Jesus on another occasion, and she also brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And we're told in that text that that perfume was worth 300 days' wages. So figure it out. You know, if, if you make forty, fifty thousand a year, thirty thousand, whatever it is, that's that's a, that's your annual wages. Well, that's how much this would have been valued at in the first century. It was probably her most prized possession, the most valuable thing that she had, and she deliberately brought that vial of perfume on purpose because she wanted to lavish it on Jesus. So she was a loving sinner. She'd used that perfume probably in the past to lure men for her trade of harlotry and prostitution. And now she's saying, I'm done with that. I don't need that perfume anymore. I'm done with that past life. I want to give that to the one who has forgiven my sins. But not only is she a loving sinner, she's also a humble sinner. Notice the text. It says she came up and stood behind him at his feet. Now we have to understand how people would eat at a, a, a dinner in the first century. There would be this horseshoe or this U-shaped table, and they didn't sit at table or at chairs with their legs under the table like we do today. They reclined. 
they, there was sort of a lying down position. And they'd lie down on cushions or pillows, and they might prop their head up with an elbow like that. And they would just talk to each other while they ate, and they'd all eat out of a, the common pot and dip their bread into the, the common pot and eat that way. So they're lying down, and Jesus is lying down, and she doesn't come and face him to his face and talk to him, she comes up from behind him. She doesn't even speak a word. She comes up from behind him and stands there at his feet. I think probably because she was too ashamed of her past life to look her Savior in the face. But she wants to show love to him. And so she comes up from behind him, there at his feet. And that was the position of a servant. A servant would come and they would take the sandals off of somebody and they would wash the person's feet. And so she takes the position of a humble servant in the presence of Jesus Christ. But not only is she a humble sinner, she's a repentant sinner. Because you'll notice that she starts to weep. Now, this is the way I imagine things took place. She's bringing this vial of perfume and but we have to understand that she's already met Jesus. This isn't the first time she's met him because she's already forgiven. She knows that she's forgiven. That's the whole point of Jesus' parable. Remember, he said, the person who's been forgiven much will love much. This woman loves me much because she's already been forgiven. Okay, so at some point in her past, she had come into contact with Jesus. Now, it's interesting if you do a harm, look at a harmony of the Gospels, and that's where they show the chronology of all the four Gospels. It's interesting, the passage that comes directly before this passage, chronologically, it's Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. And in that passage, Jesus is preaching to the multitude. And he says, Come unto me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Could it be that this woman was in the crowd and she heard Jesus say those words and she took him at his word and she came to Jesus and she believed on him to be the coming Messiah and she received forgiveness of her sins at that very moment? It just may well have been. But at some point in her life, she had come into the ministry of Jesus, heard his preaching, believed the promises of God, and she was forgiven. And so here she comes not to get forgiven. She comes because she is forgiven and she wants to bestow love on her Savior. So she comes to his feet. She bends down. She has this alabaster vial of perfume. And before you can use it, you have to break the flask off and then pour it out. And so she's getting down to do this. And she can't start this before she kisses his feet. I mean, you, you have to understand her past life. This woman was lost and ruined and destroyed by sin. And Jesus had set her free. And her heart is bursting with love, but also bursting with a sense of regret and shame for what she had lived, the past life. So she bends down at his feet and she wants to kiss them. And when she starts to kiss them, something in her heart breaks loose. The dam bursts and the floods come from her eyes and she starts to weep. And she just doesn't weep a little bit, a, a tear or two. Jesus says, she has wet my feet with her tears. The original for that word wet means to rain. She cried enough tears on Jesus' feet to actually wash them. So she was sobbing. She was sobbing convulsively. She couldn't stop. And the tears were flowing and they were wetting all over his feet. And don't you know, she probably felt embarrassed and shocked and a bit horrified. She, here she came to do something good for the master and she's just messing it all up. She's getting his feet all wet. And so she's embarrassed and she's horrified. 
but she comes as a repentant sinner. She's repenting over her past. You know, Romans 2, 4 says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And the kindness of Jesus in preaching this message of repentance and granting forgiveness of sins had so affected her that it's leading her to repentance. And she's pouring out tears, not only of sadness, but also of joy. So she is a loving sinner, a humble sinner. She's also a repentant sinner. But she's also a joyful sinner. I believe these tears are tears also of joy. They must have been. They must have been. She's coming to bestow love on Christ. She knows that he's forgiven her. Her heart must be bursting. That here, a harlot, a prostitute, a no-account, good-for-nothing, the one everyone looked down on and wagged their, their, their tongues at when she walked down the street and whispered to each other and stared at, and maybe there's muffled laughter when she comes into a room. The one who never fit in. No one ever loved her. No one ever accepted her. Here's the one that did accept her. She finds acceptance and forgiveness and freedom and love that's going to cause her heart to burst with joy. So tears are flowing, not only tears of shame and remorse, but tears of joy and happiness that she's found forgiveness. But she's also a worshiping sinner. And I love this about this woman. She comes not only to bestow love, but to let that love be expressed in true worship. Because when she finds herself totally embarrassed by what her tears are falling all over the feet of Jesus, she's horrified and embarrassed. She needs to do something, but there's no towel available. There's nothing she can use to wipe his feet. The only thing she's got is her hair. And she lets down her hair, and she uses her hair to wipe his feet. Now, you've got to know that Jesus' feet are dirty. People use sandals. They walk through dusty streets. There's no paved roads. His feet are dirty and dusty. She doesn't care. She has no, no care whatsoever that her beautiful hair is going to be soiled by the dirty feet of Jesus. She gets down on her knees and she wipes them. And she wipes them clean. And this is the hair that she used to attract her men with. And now she's using it for a totally different purpose. And not only that, but she begins to kiss his feet. And it wasn't one little peck on the, on the foot. Jesus said, since I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. That's what Jesus said. It's over and over. The fervency and the passion of her love is seen and how she continues to kiss his feet over and over. She's a worshiper. She's an awesome example for the church of a true worshiper. Now, you know, you got to know this could have been kind of awkward for Jesus. He's at this respectable dinner party with lots of religious people. And here this woman comes in and she starts making a scene. And she's sobbing and she's crying and she's kissing his feet and she's putting oil and perfume on his feet. And I mean, this could get, she's letting her hair down in public. Now, folks, a Jewish woman just didn't do that. In fact, some of the rabbis taught that if your wife let down her hair in front of another man, that was grounds for divorce. You could divorce her for that. A woman just didn't do that. It was beyond the bounds of propriety and modesty in the cult first century culture for Jewish women. But you know, this woman, she, she was kind of raw. She came out of a very raw lifestyle. And her heart, Jesus saw her heart. 
But you got to know that could have been a very awkward situation for Jesus. But he doesn't shoo her off and say, no, just, just go away for now. I'll, I'll talk to you later. This isn't the right time or place for that. He accepts it, doesn't he? And he commends her. And actually reproves Simon the Pharisee for not giving him the common courtesies of the day. And he praises her for having done everything that Simon didn't do. He praises her as a true worshiper of God. There's lots for us to learn about worship from this woman. So let's review just a little bit. She's a sinner, a loving sinner, a humble sinner, a repentant sinner, a joyful sinner, a worshiping sinner. She's also a believing sinner. Chapter 7, verse 50 says, Your faith has saved you. Now, we could get the wrong impression from this woman. We could think that Jesus forgave her because of this great love that she had for him. We could get that impression, but that would be a wrong impression. Jesus tells us explicitly that it was her faith, not her love, not her tears, not her weeping, not her gift of perfume. It wasn't any of those things. It was her faith that saved her. You see, here's the order of salvation. Faith, forgiveness, love. That's how it takes place. Faith brings about forgiveness of sins, and the forgiveness of sins produces a life of love for Jesus Christ. You see, faith is the root. Love is the fruit. Love flows from a living faith, a saving faith in Jesus Christ. It always does. It always does. If you find someone who doesn't really have a love for Christ, you have someone who really doesn't have a saving faith. Because these two things are, are bound up together. One inevitably flows out of the other. So she is a believing sinner. But she's also a forgiven sinner. Because in chapter 7, verse 48, Jesus says to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Now I want you to think, what, could, what is the greatest, the sweetest, the most amazing, the most wonderful thing, the most wonderful words that you could ever hear said to you? Wouldn't it be that? Your sins have been forgiven. She heard that with her own lips from the words of the Son of God Himself bestowing the assurance of forgiveness and salvation upon her. She was forgiven. She was free. And that's where this love and this worship stem from. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So redemption means that we have forgiveness and it's all wrapped up in the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for our sins. It's the riches of the grace of God. Can anybody here identify with this woman at all? Can you identify with, hey, I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner redeemed by Jesus. He offered me words of assurance from his word that if I trust him, I will receive the forgiveness of all my sins. And has that brought you to the place of love and humility and repentance and worship and faith? All of that flowing out of this relationship to the Son of God who's redeemed you? I hope that you can say that. Yeah, I've got a lot in common with this woman. Maybe I've never been a hooker, but I'm a sinner. 
I'm a sinner, and I can relate. I can identify. Well, look at the second guy in the story, Simon the Pharisee. There's four things I want you to notice about him. He was aloof toward Jesus. He was aloof. When Jesus came to his home, he didn't wash Jesus' feet. He didn't even call one of the servants to come and wash Jesus' feet. In fact, he didn't even provide a basin of water for Jesus to wash his own feet. He totally just bypassed all of the common courtesy of the day. He didn't offer him the, cur the common courtesy of kissing him on the cheek, which you would to a friend that had come to your home. It was part of the hospitality of offering uh, courtesy to a guest that came to your home. He didn't provide him the anointing oil for his head. That was one of the common courtesies of that day. He just kind of was formal and distant and cold and aloof. So why do you think he had Jesus come to his home then? My guess is that he was kind of curious. He was kind of sizing Jesus up. He heard some things, some amazing things about Jesus. Word is going around everywhere that this guy does miracles. In fact, he even raises dead people to life. And Simon, I'm sure, wanted to know more about Jesus. He's not a disciple. He's not a believer. But he's curious. And so he invites him to his house to try to size him up and find out more about Jesus. In fact, in that day, the, the Pharisees had already begun to try to come up with evidence to incriminate Jesus, to put him to death. It could have been that Simon is having him into his home, not for the purpose of showing love, but for the purpose of trying to find something to seize him by. Now, the second thing I notice about him is he's blind to Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is. This woman is a much better theologian, this prostitute. She's a way better theologian than this Pharisee is. The woman knows who Jesus is, the, the Pharisee doesn't. Notice verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, notice those words, he didn't speak them out loud. They're going on in his heart. If this man were a prophet, as everyone says he is, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. In other words, prophets should know. They should be able to discern if that's a sinner or not. And certainly a holy prophet would never allow a prostitute to come and touch his feet like this. She's making a couple of mistakes. Number one, she's making the mistake that Jesus is not a prophet. Number two, she's making the mistake that if he is, he wouldn't have anything to do with a prophet. And Jesus disposed both of those. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answered him. This guy spoke to himself within his heart. Jesus answers him out loud. But wait a minute. Simon never asked him a question. But he did in his heart. He's questioning in his heart whether he was a prophet or not. And so the ironical thing about this is that he said he couldn't be a prophet because he, he doesn't know who this woman is. But Jesus proves that he is. And he's more than a prophet because he can read her heart. Or his heart, excuse me. And so Jesus answers him and gives him this parable in order to show... Yeah, I'm a prophet, and I'm more than a prophet. In fact, I even have the power to forgive sins, which only God can do. I'm more than a prophet. So this man was blind to Jesus. With all his religiousness, and all of his knowledge of the Old Testament, a Pharisee would have impeccable knowledge of the Old Testament. And in, in spite of a respectable life of law-keeping, he's blind to who Jesus is. And you know, there's lots of religious people today that are in that same boat. 
They're moral. They have read the Bible. But they don't really see the glory of Christ and they're still lost. They're still in their sins. Second thing about this man, or third thing, he was blind to his own sin. That was just part of being a Pharisee. A Pharisee was proud and self-righteous of his own accomplishments. Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, used to glory in the fact that as to the righteousness which is of the law, he was blameless. He kept the law. Outwardly, nobody could, could accuse him of being a lawbreaker. Of course, there were internal sins going on in his life. And he was just as much a sinner as anybody else when God looked at him, because he reads the heart. But Simon would have been a self-righteous, proud Pharisee, proud of his accomplishments, proud of his religious accomplishments, proud of his status in the community. Everybody looked up to him as a respectable, moral, good man. So he's blind to his sin. He's blind to Jesus. But you know what? He's also blind to this woman. He's blind to this woman. Look at verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. You notice that? He's looking at the woman, and he's speaking to Simon out of the side of his mouth. And he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Well, Lord, of course I see the woman. Everybody here sees the woman. She's made a scene. She's weeping and blubbering and she's kissing your feet and she's pouring perfume all over the place. In my house, I didn't invite her here. I don't know how she got in. Of course I saw the woman. But that wasn't Jesus' point, was it? Do you really see this woman? And the answer is no. He didn't see her. He didn't see her from God's perspective, from Christ's perspective. From his perspective, she's a, a low-down, no-account sinner that shouldn't be in his house. Get her out of here. From God's perspective, she's a favorite of heaven. She's a saint. She's a forgiven woman. She's a daughter of the Most High God. She's clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. She's a favorite of heaven. But he didn't have eyes to see that. He couldn't see it. He was blind to who she was. I wonder if any of us here can identify with Simon the Pharisee. Is there any part of us that's proud, religious, self-righteous, maybe we're moral people, brought up in the church, know all the truth, but we really don't know Jesus and we're still lost? There's hope for both of them here. When this Pharisee asked Jesus to come dine with them, Jesus accepted Shows me his heart for religious people. He didn't say, forget it, you're just a self-righteous man, you're never going to understand anything I have to say, just, I'm not coming. It's a waste of my time. Jesus went. And he actually instructed this man by pointing to this transformed prostitute and what she had become through grace and, and the new life that was bursting forth from her soul. He uses that to instruct this Pharisee. He shows his love for religious and irreligious alike. Let's draw out some life lessons from this. And I'm just going to ask some questions for us to think about. Where does love for Jesus come from? Where does it come from? Well, according to Jesus, it comes from faith. Faith 
brings about forgiveness of sins, which brings about a life of love for Christ. Galatians 5.6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. That's what means something. Not faith absent from love, because that's false faith, counterfeit faith, but the kind of faith that works through love, that love works out of faith. That's, that's where um, love comes from, a heart of faith for Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 16.22, Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be what? Accursed. What's he saying? He's not saying you're saved by love. He's saying that if love is not flowing from your life to Jesus, you're not saved. You're accursed. You're headed for everlasting damnation. Love is the inevitable response of a forgiven sinner for his Savior. So, one of the ways we can apply this passage is simply to ask ourselves, do I really love Jesus? Is that evident? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep his commandments. Are you seeking to keep the commandments not to, to gain some kind of merit with God, but because you love Jesus? And Jesus is pleased when we keep his commandments. So love for Jesus comes from faith. Second question, how can we obtain more love for Jesus? This is a good question to ask. I hope you're wanting to ask that question. Do you want to love him more? He tells us how we can have it. He says the person who is forgiven much will love much. You see, we probably don't have very much love for Jesus because we really don't feel a consciousness of the great debt of sin that we owe to God. We're not consciousness of the number and the weightiness of our sins to God. I think even Christians can be partially blinded to their sin. Do you remember we said that Simon was blinded to his sin? But even as Christians, our eyes are not completely open to see the depth and the gravity of our sin. We, we just kind of pass right over it. We don't see as God sees. He sees into the hidden recesses of the heart. He sees the motives of why we do what we do. Our actions may be good on the outside, and God says that's a bad action, that's sin, because I see why you're doing that. You're doing that for the approval of others. Instead of my approval, you're doing that so that man will be pleased with you. You have no regard for me in that action at all. You see, he sees deeply, and he sees our sin. And so if we could see our own sin the way God sees it, that's going to produce greater love because we're going to know, oh my goodness, he forgave even that. He's so good and so kind to me to forgive even that. Third question. How can we best worship Jesus? And I'm going to give several answers to this. This woman was a worshiper. And I think we can learn from her. First of all, by giving him the very best we have. This woman brought the most valuable thing that she had and she lavished it on Jesus, didn't she? What's the best thing you have? Are you willing to give it to Jesus? To worship Him? For some people, maybe that's your time. Because your time is such a premium. Are you willing to carve out and make time for Jesus Christ? 
Maybe that means getting up earlier in the morning and spending time just alone with Him and singing and praying, letting Him speak to you through an open Bible. But rather than just rushing into your day with no regard for Christ, maybe it's your time that He wants you to lay down at His feet today. Maybe for other people, it's your wife or your husband or your child that you need to give to Jesus. Lay it down at His feet. Sometimes one of our children may feel a calling to be a missionary, to go over to another place in the globe, and we know we're going to sell them, see them. At least it's not so bad today, but in the 1800s or 1700s, if someone went as a missionary, they may never come back and see their parents again. And the parent had to be willing to lay down their child on the altar and give that child to Jesus and say, Lord, I love you more than I love the child. Take my son. Take my daughter. Let them do your will, Lord. Maybe for you it's a home. That's your most valuable possession. And God's wanting you to say, okay, Lord, this isn't my home. I'm willing to do in my home whatever you want me to do. If that means selling it and relocating to the inner city in the midst of poverty, in the midst of all kinds of crime in order to reach people there, Lord, take my life and do with it what you will. If that means opening up my home and inviting people in and being sort of a, an out an outpost for the kingdom, a missionary outpost. Lord, I'm willing to do that. My home is yours. Use it for your glory, Lord. We all have to answer the question ourselves, what's the best we have? Our money? Our time? Our family? Our relationships? Bring the best and lay it down at His feet. That's what a worshiper does. Secondly, by worshiping Him with our whole heart. This woman got involved emotionally, didn't she? I mean, emotion is just exuding from this woman. She's weeping and she's crying and she's, she's a broken woman. She's just a broken woman. And sometimes we kind of poo-poo emotion when it comes to worship. And I want to express to you that, that emotion is okay. And folks, I'm not an emotional person, but I really like it when God touches my heart and I get emotional. <laughs> I like that. I think it's good. It proves I'm still alive. I'm not a dead emotional person. <laughs> and I want to encourage you, if, if you want to weep during our singing or prayer time, go ahead and weep. <laughs> express emotion. Express happiness. Express joy. It's good to express emotion as you worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be a stoical formal, dead church. We ought to be alive. And that aliveness means being willing and okay with emotion. But notice she's also worshiping him with her body. She's taking her hair down, something that you just didn't do in that culture. She says, I don't care what they think. I don't care what the rabbis think. I'm going to worship Jesus Christ. And she takes her hair and her fingers and she anoints him with this perfume and she wipes his feet. She's using her body to worship Jesus. And there is a time and a place where we ought to get involved in bodily worship. Do you know the Psalms are filled with expressions to worship Jesus with your bodies? To raise your hands, to kneel down, to stand, to clap, to shout, to use instruments, to sing, to speak. All of these things require your bodily involvement. And God wants us as worshipers here at the bridge when we come on Sunday morning and in your private time, your prayer closets, to use your body in worshiping Him. 
I encourage you, I challenge you to become bodily worshipers and emotional worshipers and also thinking worshipers. All of those going on at the same time. And then, fourthly, how can we best worship Jesus? By seeking His approval over the approval of others. That's a great lesson we learned from this woman. I mean, if she cared what the religious people thought about her, she never would have come to that place that day because they all scorned her and rejected her. Boy, isn't rejection hard? I mean, I, I find it hard. When I know I'm going into a situation and I know I'm going to get rejected, I don't want to go. I'd rather go anywhere but that place. She came anyway. What an awesome example of seeking the approval of Jesus. She just wants to show love and worship to her Savior. And I want to encourage you, seek, pray about that. If you find that you're a man pleaser, pray. Pray about it. Lord, take this out of me. I want to be a God pleaser. I want to be unconcerned about what people think. I want to only be concerned what you think. And if, if that's where I'm at, then everything else is going to be okay. Whether I'm rejected here or not, it really doesn't matter. Because the God of heaven loves me and esteems me and cares for me. So let's seek to learn from not only the woman, let's learn from Simon. And let's become worshipers. Here at the bridge when we come on Sunday morning, let's allow worship just to flow. If you're a forgiven sinner, let's express our love to Jesus Christ. Bodily, emotionally, rationally, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. We do pray, Father, that you would work in our church. Work in us, Lord. Let us learn from this, this awesome example of this transformed, saved, sinful woman. Lord, we are also sinful people. And you brought us from all different kinds of backgrounds. And you've called us to be worshipers, O oh Lord. I pray, Lord, as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ represented in the bread and the juice, Lord, that we would remember our great, loving, kind Savior. That this would be done in remembrance of Him. In Jesus' holy name, amen.